Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. You can uh, follow the show, uh, get access to podcasts at danproftshow.com. Also on iTunes and Spotify for the podcast. Follow us on social media at Dan Prof Show on Twitter and Facebook, as well as at Dan Prof on Instagram at Prof Dan. You just reverse their name, last name, first name. You got it. Uh, we uh, start today with um, the doctors. Uh, this hour is going to be focused on the doctors because it's my belief that if you're going to really get the country reopened in a meaningful way, in an expeditious way, it's going to be led by the doctors because you're just going to need medical professionals to say that we believe it's time. We believe that it's relatively safe. We believe that the healthcare system can manage whatever may come to allay people's fears, whether they're fully grounded fears or not. And to that end, Daniel Murphy, emergency room doc at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx, had this piece in the New York Post. Uh, today uh, uh, about uh, working on the COVID-19 front line and saying it's time to start opening up. It's difficult to say that uh, Dr. Murphy is uh, not interested in saving lives since that's what he's been doing for 30 years and what he's been doing for the last six weeks in particular in an area that mainly serves uh, lower to middle income people. But he said this, um, first, the wave has crested. And he talks about uh, the numbers declining. Uh, three prongs. Second, he worries about non-coronavirus care. Uh, he's wondering where the other patients are that normally come to his hospital for uh, treatment for other ailments, including those patients who need uh, you know, consistent treatment, say chemotherapy or, uh, or to deal with other long-term conditions. Finally, uh, COVID-19 is more prevalent than we think, writes Dr. Murphy. Many New Yorkers already have the infection, and we talked about the uh, early reports of the uh, seroprevalence studies out of New York. At present, the testing is imperfect, but we can't wait months. We must protect the vulnerable and mitigate without destroying the economy. Standing up to this virus can't be the job of, quote-unquote, essential workers only. We've been strong, but we're tired, and we need the rest of you to help us by getting back to work. Another a doctor who has been uh, uh, sounding a similar signal is Dr. Scott Atlas. He is the David and Joan Tradle Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and the former ch- Chief of Neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center. And he joins us now. Dr. Atlas, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. 
Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, uh, what uh, you heard uh, or read, uh, Dr. Murphy, uh, his views, that those square pretty similar to the views I've heard you offer on Martha McCallum and some of and, and in op-eds that you've written, too, including at the Hill. Yes, it does. I think that the point here is that we don't rely now on hypothetical projections. We have a tremendous amount of evidence and knowledge. And it's true. The policies, we have flattened the curve. But these are points that have to be understood. The risk of dying from the virus is far lower than the initial projections had predicted. And in fact, for the majority, the overwhelming majority of infected people, it's extremely low. For instance, in New York, two-thirds of the deaths in the state are over uh, age 70. People that are under 18 have virtually zero risk. Secondly, we know that we have a targeted at-risk population that we can uh, you know, protect and that prevents hospital overcrowding. We look at the New York numbers of the hospitalized patients from this virus, of, the, of people under 18, that number is 0.6% of the total hospitalized population. So we know who to target to prevent the overcrowding. And third, uh, as you had mentioned, there's a massive amount of critical medical care that is being skipped or missed because of this single-minded focus on COVID-19. This is not just benign things like cosmetic surgery. That's not what was skipped. What was skipped was half of all cancer chemotherapy treatments. 80% of brain surgery cases were not done. People with acute strokes and heart attacks didn't even seek medical care. Many of them have permanent disability now. Organ living donor transplants were down 85%. And what's even more foreboding is that we didn't biopsy thousands of potential cancers that are biopsied per week. People are avoiding childhood vaccinations out of fear for entering a medical environment. This is massive harm if we continue this total isolation. And then the final point I'd like to mention is that the total isolation policy itself prevents broad population immunity from being developed. I mean, this is decades of medical science knowledge, just because we don't know everything about this virus, that does not mean we know nothing. We have decades of knowledge about immunology and virology and how we block the pathways of contagiousness with the so-called herd immunity toward vulnerable people by having enough people in the population that have antibodies. When they get infected, they have antibodies, and it's great news that in this virus, Half of people have no symptoms whatsoever, and the vast majority of the rest have very mild disease. So we can have all these infected people in low-risk groups get immunity with their own antibodies, and that in and of itself is the way that the population blocks transmission. This is the whole theory of why widespread vaccines are done, to assist in this herd immunity. And, you know, this, this is known. This is not... We don't know, it is true, we don't know if antibodies to this virus are protective, but it's, it's expected by everyone that it is, and that's the whole underlying theory of why people are excited about transfusing blood from people who have had the disease, COVID-19. Their antibodies are potentially useful in being given to people who don't have it or who are just are getting it as a potential treatment or prevention. And so, you know, this is the excitement scientists have about that route of, uh, of drug development that's being looked at right now. What about There's a tremendous amount? Go ahead. I'm sorry. What, what about uh, the, the in the in the rush to get a vaccine? 
uh, the the issue of uh, a challenge trial has been raised. The idea that um, uh, after phase one and phase two trials determine the proper dosage of initial safety for a potential vaccine, you would uh, then do a variolation, I, I guess, is another way to put it, which is to inject healthy people with the proper dosage as a way to to uh, challenge the effectiveness of it. You know, there's a lot of expedited testing going on with vaccines, and, you know, I'm not going to speculate on how these are going to be done. I can tell you we have the world's best uh, safety agencies for drugs, and I don't think that we're going to start injecting people with something that isn't proven, absolutely proven to be safe. And, you know, that, that's, a big, uh, that's a big step to take. But I, I want to set something straight about vaccines, if I can. Yeah. People uh, think that there's some kind of a magic wand from a vaccine. That remains to be seen. Not all vaccines wipe out, the, wipe out a disease. In fact, if we just look at the flu shot, it's just one example. It's a totally different virus. But just to let people understand, the vaccination for flu is 40 to 60% effective. Right. That's the CDC's website. There's no magic wand out there necessarily from a vaccine, even if one is developed. Right. No, it's a, it's a good point that you raised. We've raised it on this show before, too. And, and again, in addition to that, 40 to 60 percent effective. And yet we still have seen what's the average number of flu deaths over the last five years, uh, upwards of 40,000. Yes. Uh, you know, 30 to 60,000 Americans die every season from the flu and half a million people in the world die every year from the flu. Does it seem to you that in because perhaps of the fear stoked by the unknown, we're in this sort of wild position where any other death is uh, just the unfortunate uh, uh, vagaries of human existence. Death by any other means is the unfortunate vagaries of human existence, except COVID-19. Yeah, I think that this is really a critical point, is that fear, I believe, has, has influenced a lot of public policy statements by people in positions of authority. I'm talking about potentially state governors, et cetera. And it's understandable because they're just human beings. They're not medically sophisticated people, frankly, and they don't understand medical science. And fear uh, and sort of statements that incite fear have been very harmful, very harmful to uh, the American public. So I, I think we really need to go back to the evidence and the science, which we have now. We have tremendous amount of knowledge. We do not need to rely on the worst-case scenario hypotheticals. We have great people in the White House task force. We have mobilized a tremendous amount of resources very quickly. And uh, even if there is some sort of a second wave, we are far better prepared right now and far more educated as a public about how to deal with these things. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more about secondary effects, which you just talked about, as well as uh, what uh, a phased in reopening, a sensible one looks like as we have some states now taking slightly different approaches. More with Dr. Scott Atlas, former chief of neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center right after this. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Dr. Scott Atlas. He is the David and Joan Tradle Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and the former Chief of Neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center. And Dr. Atlas, you were mentioning before when we were talking about uh, 
the, the, the some of the rationales to begin reopening and the concern about the integrity of the, the health care system in terms of uh, is it being weakened because of it's all hands on deck to, for COVID-19 to the exclusion of so many other treatments and patients are afraid to come get uh, the health care they need at hospitals and so forth. Um, the other secondary effects, in addition to that, uh, we've you, we've heard anecdotal stories about, uh, for example, the suicide hotline in L.A. County, uh, the volume of calls going up 8000 um, percent. But but the, the the real health concerns associated with uh, economic devastation, I don't know another way to put it. Well, I think this is a very real concern, and I, and I, I'm not, I haven't been speaking about that, but more, you know, all of my uh, economist colleagues uh, here have, this is an obvious, unspoken, uh, potential, uh, and, and real devastation that's, that's about to happen if, if this kind of economic policy restriction, total economic lockdown, isn't lifted very soon. Even what has been done will not likely be quick to recover and so uh we know what happens when there's a, you know massive economic downturns we know what happens in the united states from history we also know worldwide i mean uh, i'm pretty sure the u.n projected that 50 million children will fall below the poverty level if this continues and so th- there's a massive cost here we cannot sit here making uh you know policy based upon single-minded you know, goals. We have to take everything into consideration here. And that includes the harms that are very direct and not are already happening in, you know, evidence, as you had cited in the, some of the statistics I mentioned. Well, yeah. And you have uh, just to your point about uh, thinking globally uh, and, and lives versus lives. Uh, David Beasley, who's the executive director of the World Food Program. Uh, is anybody listening to this guy? Because uh, Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, uh, uh, noted and he tweeted about uh, cases starting to spike in Africa. D- uh, David Beasley at the World Food Program is saying, look, we're talking about famine of biblical proportion because I have supply web issues, I have uh, closed borders, so I have uh, transportation logistics issues, and I also have a resource shortfall. That's an issue. And I'm talking about 300,000 people dying a day from starvation in the not-too-distant future if I don't and we don't remedy these hurdles. And so how is what we're doing in America putting us in a position to help Africa, for example, in addition to helping our own people, but to help other people, which is always what America does. It's why this is the beacon of hope the world over. And and that's just not being considered. I mean, think of the scale of that death that could otherwise be prevented. And it's a reminder domestically, internationally, if you don't have a strong economy, you, you cannot have a strong public health system. This is absolutely true. The world, uh, to a great extent, it, obviously, we're very globally connected economically, but the world depends on uh, the financial strength, the economic strength of the United States, as well as many other, you know, very developed economies. I mean, you know, uh, Germany, from what I had read, it was costing them $40 billion uh, a week, every single week in their economic losses from total lockdown, and that was equal to their annual expenditures on defense. And so, you know, th- this is an enormous and as yet untold, unquantified economic disaster 
uh, right now already, and we need to really get get out of this in a sensible way. And there are factual uh, reasons to do so. That that's the whole point here of what I'm trying to say. And uh, as you're uh, reading along with the rest of us, some of the different uh, plans being implemented by the different governors in the different states, like for example. Uh, Greg Abbott in Texas, uh, businesses uh, begin phased in reopening on Friday. Uh, retail stores, restaurants, malls, theaters can reopen, but only at 25 percent capacity. Then phase two will be hairdressers, gyms uh, and, and so on and so forth. Sort of, you know, the gradual, both in terms of the types of businesses, as well as the uh, scale of clientele that will you'll be allowed to serve as you sort of, uh, you know, walk before you run. Does that make sense to you? I think it makes sense to use the local, regional, state-based, you know, uh, data to make your your decisions. And uh, although, and you know, for instance, uh, as I as I may have mentioned, uh, you know, because of the safety of under 18 in both hospitalizations and serious illnesses, public schools, schools, K through 12 schools should be open. Um, for instance, businesses and offices should be open, with the caveats of sanitization standards and warnings to elderly people. I get a little bit uh, confused when people are dictating by law which businesses can open. I'm not sure there's any evidence of that uh, and, and any evidence to support that. I think the policy should be far more targeted to protecting who needs to be targeted, uh, who, who needs to be protected. And, you know, pe- people, by the way, uh, don't have to go in. If a, if a store is open, that doesn't mean that somebody who's 65 years old has to be forced to go in. They have a decision to make knowing risks. You know, it sort of boils down to, uh, in, in a sense, uh, you know, what is the role of government here? I, I'm not sure I understand how we can have a law that dictates which businesses can be open. Second point I want to make about these things like restaurants and other businesses that people are reluctant to open is that, you know, when you have healthy people in their 20s and 30s, there's no evidence uh, to suggest, and in fact, it's, it, it goes against the herd immunity thing. There's no evidence to, to suggest that they need to be six feet apart and have these massive distances inside restaurants, for instance. Healthy younger people do not have a significant risk from this disease. I don't understand the logic or the evidence on making that sort of limitation. Well, right. And, and to your point, uh, Dr. Lisa Jacobs, who is uh, a child, adolescent and adult psychiatrist in Menlo Park in California, she uh, writes uh, in this piece at uh, Stat News, all the teens and young adults I treat have made valiant efforts to isolate themselves to protect others, even knowing that they are extremely unlikely to die from COVID-19. For the first two weeks, they did well. Now they're suffering. Some hit their limits and can't do it anymore. More teens, young adults tell me this with each passing week. Their restlessness and boredom have morphed into depression, anxiety, and anger. And, you know, you you can read that and react like, you know, hey, uh, man up, kids. Everybody's got to pull their weight here. But you can also read read that appropriately, as you're saying, in the context of the danger presented. Are we pursuing policies that make sense for the best interests of our kids, which are often invoked as the basis on which we make decisions? Right. I mean, I think the key here is we need to get rid of the influence of fear in the policies that are being done and look at what we know and proceed. Yeah, it's a favorite aphorism that was handed down to me. When you make a decision rooted in fear, you almost invariably make the wrong decision. 
He is uh, Dr. Yes. Dr. Scott Atlas, the David and Joan Tradle Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and the former Chief of Neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center. Dr. Atlas, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure, been a pleasure. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. On Meet the Press over the weekend, that yapping terrier Chuck Todd again featured Dr. Michael Osterholm. He is a Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. And uh, we're efforting to get him on the show, too, because we want to hear uh, from uh, experts, doctors, uh, public health professionals across the spectrum who have different views and sometimes different views uh, of the same data and sometimes different, uh, sometimes agreement on the data and different views what the data implicates. Uh, so unlike, say, um, a lot of these politicians say, I don't know, a particular governor who has the same waist and inseam as Kim Jong-un, uh, perhaps uh, yeah, comparing the, the uh, opinions and the information that he's receiving as he falls into the Ionitis trap, as I'm calling it now, not believing the real data, believing my models. Lives for lives. He, he's talking about 300,000 people a day for months in the not too distant future, if some of the problems he sees with the work that he oversees are not fixed. Uh, so so again, lives versus lives. And again, you cannot have a strong public health system if you don't have a strong economy. How is what we're doing in the West putting us a position to help people in Africa, for example? A question I would put to all those who suggest that all these draconian measures are because they're public are their servant leaders and they're other regarding. Well, there are people that are other regarding and servant leaders who disagree with the policy choices being made. That's the point. So to Osterholm, uh, he said some a couple of things that are worth noting. And uh, we've got medical professionals coming on, so I'd like to get their opinion. But first, let's set them up with what he said. One of the things is. Uh, where we what, what we need to do essentially to get to herd immunity or how that would happen. What what's the threshold? And he put a percentage on it. Other doctors we've talked to, microbiologists we've talked to. There's, there's no exact percentage. Andrew Bogan, who was co-author of the Santa Clara antibody study, uh, as well as others have said that. But Alsterholm feels confident giving a range. Well, first of all, let's just take the numbers. At most, 5 to 15 percent of the United States has been infected to date. With all the experience we've had so far, this virus is going to keep transmitting. It's going to keep trying to find humans to do what it does until we get at least 60 or 70 percent of the people infected. That's what it'll take to get herd immunity. You know, Chuck, we're in the very earliest days of this situation right now. You know, if I could just briefly say one uh, story here. 
Right after 9-11, I spent a number of days up at your studios doing filming around the issue of what was happening. And your late, your, the predecessor here, uh, the late Tim Rustert, used to say to me all the time, Hi, Doc, how you doing? Is the big one here yet? And I would always say, No, Tim, it's not. If he asked me today, Is the big one here or is it coming? I would say, Tim, this yeah. is the big one. And it's going to be here for the next 16 to 18 months. And people don't get that yet. We're just on the very first stages. When I hear New York talking about the fact they're down on the backside of the mountain, I know they've been through hell. And, it's, and, and that's an important right. statement. But they have to understand that's not the mountain. That's the foothills. They have mountains to go yet. Right. We have a lot of people to get infected before this is over. Uh, that may be true. But the question, that's why the question of lethality rate is the germane one. And, and hospitalization rate, too. Because we have tens of millions of flu cases and hospitalizations and tens of thousands of deaths every year, too. This is why lethality and the, the data we have versus what the models were predicting is such a critical discussion. The one other thing he said that's notable is about uh, the question whether or not after you've been infected, do you develop an immunity? And he uh, referenced some animal research that's promising. The statement that came out yesterday from the World Health Organization suggesting there may not be immunity was misinterpreted to mean that we don't have evidence today that you are protected uh, from humans. But we have actually animal model data, monkeys that have been infected intentionally and then rechallenged that were protected. We have a new study on Friday that said vaccine protected them. So I think we're going to have it. I just don't think it's going to be soon. When we come back, we'll be joined by Adam Hartage and Dr. John Bao of Remote Health Solutions to talk herd immunity, lethality rates, and shutdowns. Adam Hartage and Dr. John Bao join us next on the Dan Prof. Show. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're now pleased to be joined by Adam Hartage. He's the CEO and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions. And Dr. John Bao, he's an emergency room doctor and chief medical officer and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions. Adam and Dr. John, not the musician, rest in peace. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Um, so whoever wants to take this jump ball, let's start with this uh, herd immunity. Do we, do we, I mean, assuming that we'll get to herd immunity before we get to a vaccine, if it's 12 to 18 months, to, to the extent that's, that even uh, manifests itself, is that right, that threshold? Is that the target that we're looking for, or is there such a thing as a target? This is Dr. Baugh, this is John Baugh. So we are looking for that herd immunity. The problem is, like has been mentioned, is we're not quite sure what that number needs to be. And unfortunately, until we get some widespread antibody testing, we're not even going to know how much of our 
um, our community has been infected already and has um, recovered. I think there's a little bit of a misinterpretation when we look at that um, data from the WHO about, well, it, you know, they initially came out and said that there doesn't appear to be any evidence that uh, we are gaining immunity. I think that was a little bit misinterpreted, uh, the data both by them and from them, because we know, in fact, if you look at their, their data, we know that we gain immunity against viruses by getting infected and then recovering. They're just not quite sure how long it's going to last. But we know even with other coronaviruses that, that we gain that immunity, and that's really how our societies, how our communities are going to be protected uh, this fall and in the future. Now, we may not have that immunity last for more than a season, but we know that it should at least give us seasonal protection and seasonal immunity. And, and the, the key really is going to be um, uh, some herd immunity because then it doesn't go from person to person because you've already got a surrounding percentage of you that's already been infected and has already recovered. And so that, that person's not going to spread it to others. Now, and we also know... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, what, what about this idea uh, from um, a, uh, a paper that I read uh, from a couple of economists and, and epidemiologists the idea of early detection of super spreaders, uh, what uh, they're, they're talking about a mass group testing to early identify super spreaders. They, the model, here we go, model, but nonetheless, applied to real COVID-19 dynamics in London, Moscow, and New York City. Uh, the upshot is the findings are that the top 10% of spreaders transmit 45% of the new cases. And so they argue rapid isolation of super spreaders leads to a four to eight fold mitigation of the pandemic depending on the quarantine strength, the amount of currently affected people and other variables. What about that? What about we're trying to zero in on those uh, doing the disproportionate share of the spreading? Yeah. So that is very important, not only for in the future, as we, as we look at the recurrence or the, the reemergence of COVID-19, but also for us to be able to get back to um, a normal society. Because if we can isolate individuals rather than communities, then, then we can really make a big difference in what's going on with our economy and our community and also the, the rapid spread. If As we isolate those, those super spreaders, those who are um, most easily transmit the virus, and we isolate them instead, you know, as we talked about with, with our company, with Remote Health Solutions, using technology to keep them home and away from others and still be able to keep an, um, a very close medical eye on them and allow them to be um, not the source of further spread as we try to open up our society and then as we try to keep it open later in the fall. And that's, that's really, I, I do agree, that's one of the, the keys that we've talked about a lot. Just in terms of first principles here, best practices, uh, uh, immunology 101, if you will, uh, are we supposed to quarantine healthy people or just sick people? Well, this, I'll say this. This is a, a really, truly unprecedented time. We hear that a lot. In, uh, in this scenario, I think that the, the first idea as we moved into this, uh, the idea of quarantining or isolating healthy individuals as well as sick individuals was, was important as we move forward. I think we are isolating um, maybe some healthy individuals who are at very high risk, but then really we're isolating those who are sick and those who spread the disease, and we let the rest of the healthy individuals get back to work and get back to taking care of their families. 
we really just can't maintain what we're doing and expect uh, families to uh, move forward and survive in the way that we know that they need to. And, I mean, we do have, thankfully, as it turns out, uh, what Sweden is doing and what Sweden has done, and we find that uh, Sweden, basically, with uh, kids in school and, and, and businesses open, uh, and, you know, some isolation, but, as you say, more with respect to vulnerable people rather than everybody, you know, they're basic. They're doing better than uh, the states in this country that have the greatest outbreak. And they're about the middle of the pack in Europe. And uh, they say their epidemiologists say they're approaching herd immunity. You know, this is. Yeah, I haven't jumped in. You know, what, uh, the same thing I've been saying since uh, we started looking at this as a company in early January. I, I think we were one of the first companies. I mean, we were up on Capitol Hill. Uh, mid-January, beating the drum, trying to say, hey, this thing is going to be serious and this is a real problem. And also the same thing I was saying back then, and it's not it's not the choir in the theater it's, that kills everybody. It's a stampede for the exit. And um, I, I fear, so back in the military days, uh, I, was, I was a military guy for a long time, and uh, we used to talk about second and third order effects. So in other words, it's not just that the act that you do, whether it's, you know, taking out a terrorist or something like that, but it's the follow-on knock-on effects that have the issues. And, and I, I, I see parallels to this in a big way because if you disable the global supply chain and economy, which we've in essence done, biggest experiment in all of human history is doing that. It's like I call it 2020, the year that people just quit. Um, I, I think that the, the knock-on effects we haven't even started to see yet, and I think it gets scary when you start talking about things that are creeping up now, like food shortages, and that leads to civil unrest. Civil unrest leads to, you know, martial law. Martial law leads to revolution. You know, I mean, like these are the kind of this is the road that we've started to go down. So I, I think it's time to start opening responsibly because uh, you, you cannot ask the world to just stop because people at the end of the day have to have to trade they've got to to put food on the on the table for their families adam hardage ceo and co-founder of remote health solutions dr john bow emergency room doctor chief medical officer and co-founder of remote health solutions with uh, the fabulous bakersfield boys being deplatformed by youtube you guys may be able to fill in be the new the new stars the new youtube stars uh adam and dr john thanks so much for joining us appreciate it thank you thanks for having us The more you'll know, this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. And uh, Lenny Reifenstahl has nothing on the Obamas, it would appear. New documentary coming out on Netflix, uh, set to debut May 6th, Becoming. Does that ring familiar? It should because of the attention it got and the uh, 35 city book tour that one Michelle Obama did when her autobiography slash hagiography Becoming was published. Well, that's now being made into uh, a documentary. Of course it is. (laughs) Of course it is. Guess who's uh, producing the film? Yeah. Higher Ground Productions. Does that ring familiar? Yeah. Higher Ground Productions is the production company the Obamas set up to strike a $50 million deal with Netflix. Boy, that's uh, the circle of life there, Simba, isn't it? Uh, Becoming is going to be great. So in case you missed 
Michelle Obama taking the hard hitting questions on her book tour and stadia around the country from the likes of Oprah or Gail King. You can watch it on film like you were there. Good uh, write up on it by uh, Hollywood and Toto or at the Hollywood and Toto making the point for years. Conservatives gritted their teeth while filmmakers fawned over a procession of a procession of progressive figures. RBG, of course, with Bader Ginsburg and also on the basis of sex. You know, these they get multiple documentaries. AOC knocked down the house. Uh, even Ilhan Omar, time for Ilhan, probably missed that one as well. You should have. Obama himself has gotten two. Southside with you and Barry. Each of these, uh, writes Hollywood and Toto, made their subjects look smart, capable, and deserving of the spotlight. And in the case of AOC and Omar, that is impressive. That is some quality filmmaking to make those two socialist Spice Girls look smart and capable, deserving of the spotlight. By contrast, the Hulu series Miss America as critics describing the show's depiction of pro-life icon Phyllis Schlafly as a villain, if not worse. The same thing happened in reference to Phyllis Schlafly in uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is otherwise a great show, but just was a completely false endeavor of character assassination when in the uh, most recent season of Mrs. Maisel, Phyllis Schlafly's uh, persona was invoked. Um, So just FYI in that. But nonetheless, becoming uh, May 6th, do you want to set your viewing schedule, particularly if you live in a shutdown state accordingly, I suppose. And by accordingly, I mean to ignore it. And instead, I got an idea for you. Here's something you can watch instead of that. And it uh, won't even cost you a Netflix subscription. Uh, For a limited time, use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off no safe spaces. This is for Dan Prof listeners. Discount code SAVE25. This is the film produced by my colleague and our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla that tackles the assault on free speech in this country on college campuses, social media platforms, like I don't know, the deplatforming by YouTube of not only Prager University videos, but of the fabulous Bakersfield, California boys, those two doctors who had their video taken down, not for violating community standards. That's exactly what No Safe Spaces is addressing, as well as providing you with uh, some ideas about how you can join the fight in favor of free speech and free thought and a free America. Again, no safe spaces. Watch for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com. No safe spaces at nosafespaces.com. Use the promo code SAFE25 for 25% off. No safe spaces. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. There's been uh, much discussion about uh, the United States' relationship with China. Op-ed just in the last 24 hours from Walter Russell Mead about uh, Chinese communists. Uh, Charles Lipson from the University of Chicago, Professor Emeritus there, talking about a China-U.S. Cold War. In National Post, a piece by uh, Father D'Souza on China's quote-unquote Chernobyl moment. And all of those op-eds and apparently uh, all of the D.C. press corps questions to President Trump and President Trump's pronouncements on China and general interest in a discussion about uh, China and their role in the viral outbreak globally, uh, this is not the time. Everybody needs to be quiet and uh, listen to what Bill Gates has to say 
as he relayed his views on China to Fareed Zakaria over the weekend. Well, I don't think that's a timely thing because it doesn't affect how we act today. Uh, you know, China did a lot of things right. You know, at the beginning, like any country where a virus first shows up, you know, they can look back and say where they, they missed some things. Uh, you know, a lot of the, there, you know, some countries did respond very quickly and get their testing in place, and they avoided the incredible economic pain. And it's sad that even the U.S. that you would have expected to do this well uh, did it particularly poorly. But it's not time to talk about that. But this is the time to take the great science we have, the fact that we're in this together, you know, fix testing, treatments, and get that vaccine. And, you know, minimize the trillions of dollars uh, and many things that you can't even dimensionalize in economic terms uh, that are awful about the situation that we're in. So that's a distraction. Uh, I think there's a lot of, you know, incorrect and unfair things said, but it's not even time for that discussion. Not time for that discussion. But before we have that discussion about the discussion, do, do I detect a bit of Ed Grimley in Bill Gates? See if, if I'm right. It only goes to prove... That even though the clouds can, can they can get as dark and thick as is well they can get thick you know but then still the sun's rays can not so much bust through. I don't, I don't know if I quite got it, but I think I hints of Ed Grimley. Uh, so uh, China is uh, hey they got some things right they missed some things sounds like uh, they were very well intentioned and uh, you know mistakes were made. But now's not the time to talk about China. We can't have more than one conversation happening simultaneously. We have to compartmentalize our dialogue with respect to the range of issues that uh, are triggered by a discussion of dealing with a pandemic, both in real time and prospectively. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Julie Kelly. Julie is a senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Julie, thanks for joining us. Is, is that right? Is Bill Gates right now is not the time for any discussion of China? I, I would think I, people would be interested in finding out the uh, source of the viral outbreak from both a uh, public health uh, uh, as well as an economic perspective. But but maybe, uh, you know, Bill Gates is right. He is a billionaire. Well, you really nailed that at Grimley saying now all I could see is Bill Gates doing that little dance that Ed Grimley used to do. Yeah. Martin Short. Thank you. That guy has really lost his mind, but as have many people. I absolutely do think that the China issue has to be confronted, the multitude of issues that we have to confront with China. I think one of the beauties of the Trump era is exposing all of these things that we've taken for granted for years. One of them is that we can be pals with China, that they don't pose any kind of economic or national security threat to us, which we now know is absolutely not true. And so Trump has been right about China on many aspects. And you have people who were defending China, arguing against Trump's so-called trade war with China. And that looks like child's play compared to what we have to confront now. Speaking of uh, the conversation with China, which also does happen during the task force briefings, or maybe they're just going to be called press conferences now. I don't know after this weekend into Monday. Uh, but uh, assuming the task force briefings go forward, which I think would be judicious on the president's part, what form should they take? You uh, opined on this topic. I did. I wrote a piece last week um, that I think a lot of Trump supporters were in favor of. 
and that is that it seemed like the coronavirus task force briefings were becoming counterproductive and backfiring. And I think that we saw that towards the end of the week with the ridiculous uh, media hype about Lysol and injecting bleach and disinfectant into your veins. But look, more and more Americans are very concerned about the catastrophic condition of our economy, what this is going to mean for the future. We need to hear from the president strong plans, not just more bailouts and printing imaginary money, but how we need to open up this economy as fast as possible. Because quite frankly, all the doomsday scenarios that we've been told for weeks just have not materialized outside of, you know, New York and New Jersey. So we need to hear from Trump uh, about what he plans to do to get businesses reopened, get people's lives back to normal. It seems to me he'll have uh, some good fodder for that conversation because uh, as uh, he watches the many states that are at some phase of reopening reopen, then we're going to have, again, real world experience to inform our suppositions and then we could say well look uh, look at what texas is doing in governor abbott down there and that seems to be working very well and they haven't they have or they haven't had uh you know working well or not working well they have or they haven't had uh, an outbreak they they're managing their affairs we we knew there were still going to be more people infected that's just the nature of it you don't just snap your fingers and make it go away but we can see in texas or ohio or georgia or oklahoma or, or wherever that here are some best practices once implemented produce these results, and so other states should feel confident to do the same. That's exactly right, Dan. I mean, we have to have comparisons, and we already do have several comparisons, say Florida versus New York. You know, Florida should be ground zero for massive outbreaks of coronavirus given how many international and domestic travelers were here through February into, you know, mid to late March, an elderly population that obviously is very vulnerable to this virus. But you have one zip code in Queens that has more fatalities in the entire state of Florida with 24 million people. And so Ron DeSantis, the governor, is supposed to announce today his reopening plans. I'm afraid he's going to baby step it like we saw Governor Abbott do in Texas. But to your point, Dan, I think Trump's criticism of Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia last week was a little bit of a turning point. A lot of Americans want to see, especially Trump supporters and his base, want to see these states with very low mortality rates and infection rates open up quickly and get people back to work. So I think that was a big misstep of the president. You think so? Or was it or or was it President Trump? I mean, it's interesting. I I, it's open to interpretation. So let me just give you the competing one, which is it was a jujitsu opportunity for him to show that this isn't partisan. It's not an R.D. It's not a red blue thing. It's uh, here are the guidelines. Follow the guidelines. If you go outside the guidelines, I'm going to criticize you, even if you're my friend, because it's about uh, safety first and a safe reopening. And it gives him some, um, you know, some standing by doing the thing that you didn't think he would do. It could be. And I heard that argument from some Trump supporters, too. But look, you can't stand up there day after day, in my opinion, and commend Gavin Newsom and commend Andrew Cuomo and Phil Murphy, the uh, governor of New Jersey, and then turn around and pivot and criticize a Republican governor who has every right to open up his state. 
so I thought it was a big misstep. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. And, and you know, I mean, it's just like continuing to say if we hadn't done the things that we did, 2.2 million Americans would have died because that's what this uh, Imperial College London model that we know now know is, you know, no basis in reality says. And and so he's playing the same game of all the shutdown politicians, which is if we hadn't done what I what I said we should do and what I instituted, then it would have been much, much worse. And how do you prove the negative that it wouldn't have been? Um, so it's easy for politicians to operate in that direction. And the president has, too, admittedly. He did. You know, I think one of Trump's biggest mistakes in all of this was taking the Murray models out of the University of Washington, which projected all of these deaths, 102, up to 200,000 deaths. That was the model that Deborah Birx and Anthony Fauci presented to the president at the end of March. It was unsound model. It had not been tested or peer-reviewed, really just picked numbers out of the air, presented it to him at the end of March, and that was what fueled the extension of the CDC social distancing, as they call it, guidance through the end of this month. I think history will show that to be another major mistake. And it's unlike Trump to have taken such advice at face value, not have people vet it out and look at the economic ramifications, because I would be surprised at the end of the day if Trump anticipated what we are seeing now in terms of joblessness, in terms of you know what we had to do to try to sustain people financially for the next several months. I'd be surprised if he knew that this was coming. Right. I mean, who you know, who can? I mean, this is the butterfly effect, right? I mean, you when you tinker with something as massive and complicated as uh, the global economy or even just the U.S. economy, $20 trillion economy, you don't know exactly what uh, kind of externalities you'll create. Uh, there's no question about that. She's Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Julie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Take care. Seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, TJ Rogers is a founding CEO of a significant semiconductor corporation, that is. Uh, He uh, wrote in the Wall Street Journal this week uh, about uh, enlisting his engineers to do a little bit of uh, data analysis on the data that we have, which, again, remarkably, per uh, Professor Ioannidis from Stanford, we are still in an environment where you have some people, including some people occupy governor's mansions, relying on mathematical models or epidemiological models over the real world data. It, it's uh, flabbergasting to him uh, and many others, including me going back to Rogers did a one variable correlation of deaths per million and days to shut down to assess lockdown versus no lockdown. Does it matter? Uh, range from minus 10 days. Some states shut down before any sign of COVID-19 to 35 days for South Dakota, one of, seven states with basically no shutdown. The uh, correlation coefficient he found, 5.5%, so low that the engineers that I used to employ would have summarized it as no correlation and moved on to find the real cause of the problem. Real causes, like other variables they looked at, uh, population density or subway use. Our correlation coefficient for per capita death rates versus population density 
44%. That suggests New York City might have benefited from its shutdown, but blindly copying New York's policies in places with low COVID-19 death rates uh, and, say, for example, uh, subway systems, nothing akin to what New York City relies on. Uh, Using those policies in places such as my native Wisconsin doesn't make sense. Hmm. Different policies for different locales. Right. Regional approach. Uh, Sweden, he goes on, looked at Sweden. uh, And uh, how are they doing? We've talked about Sweden a lot, and this continues to be an outlier, so it's going to be compared against other Western nations, European uh, nations, as well as America. 80 million deaths per 21 after crossing the one per million threshold with 10 million people. Sweden's death rate without a shutdown and without massive unemployment because there was no shutdown. Is lower than the seven hardest hit U.S. states, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Louisiana, Connecticut, Michigan, New Jersey, and New York, all of which except Louisiana shut down in three days or less. Sweden again in the middle of a pack in Europe. And we've talked about that a little bit yesterday in conjunction with the fabulous Bakersfield boys about Sweden versus Norway not statistically significant death rates for more on modelings modeling and why so many were so wildly wrong and implicated perhaps some wildly uh, erroneous public policy making we're pleased to be joined by phil magnus Uh, phil is the senior research fellow at the american institute for economic research author of the 1619 project a critique and cracks in the ivory tower the moral mess of higher education phil thanks for joining us appreciate it Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. So, um, you know, we continue to see uh, people from various disciplines just using real-world data. Uh, uh, Will Riley over at Kentucky State did a regression analysis, finally basically came up with the same conclusion that T.J. Rogers and his engineers at the semiconductor company came up with. And uh, you've looked at uh, a new research paper out by Harvard at MIT Health Economists that suggests uh, why, for example, the much-relied-upon Imperial College London model was so wrong. Right, right. So the problems that come, are coming out with the Imperial College model is they made some very unfounded assumptions when they launched this projection back in March, uh, and it's the one that we all heard in the news, saying that 2.2 million people would die if we did not go into lockdown. Uh, It's the one that was cited by President Trump. And then in the U.K., you had a similar projection of 500,000 deaths that swayed the Boris Johnson government to abandon a uh, herd immunity strategy in favor of the lockdowns that they now have in place. Yeah, and and, and this was wrong not just because it was not predicated on real-world data, because this was before the, the outbreak really became pronounced enough to have significant data, but it just predicated on a fundamental uh, misunderstanding of human behavior? Yeah, I'd say so. So the uh, the 2.2 million death toll projections were all based on what they called their do-nothing scenario. That was basically as if the world stayed the course and uh, almost pretended as if the pandemic didn't exist and just kept on the same behavioral track. But uh, they actually concede in the paper that the do-nothing scenario itself was unlikely, even though they're hyping it to the press at that time. They're telling the New York Times that this is a a realistic scenario when it wasn't at all. Uh, But what we know from other sources of data 
is uh, up to about a month before the lockdowns went into effect, so we're talking about mid to late February, people were already modifying their behavior in response to the threat of the pandemic. And you can think about this if you're going down the grocery store aisles. What was sold out at the time? It's Lysol, it's hand sanitizer, it's basic uh, hygiene materials that people were uh, using to, uh, to wash their hands with higher frequency. Uh, we saw so some other data, I think Open Table, the uh, the restaurant reservation app, released its data for February and March, and there's a precipitous decline in all 50 states of restaurant reservations starting about two weeks before the lockdowns uh, set in place. So what this tells me is that people are modifying their behavior in the face of this risk, in the face of this uncertainty of a very deadly disease uh, before the lockdowns are even in place, and none of that's accounted for or built into any of these models that were projecting these horrendous death tolls. So so who, who is the more responsible party, I guess? Is it, is it Neil Ferguson and Imperial College London for uh, hyping the top line and not all the caveats, or is it the media for just reporting the type the top line, even though all the caveats were included there for con- contextual information and thus contextual reporting, uh, the, the politicians who ran with all of this, even though they had the contextual information, too, and I guess just ignored it or were willfully blind to it. Uh, you know, I, I mean, somebody has to sort of be the most fraudulent party here. Right. I think it's actually a, an unfortunate combination, like a perfect storm of all three of those things. Uh, so Ferguson himself, you know, if you read the paper, it's much more subdued in its projections than his public commentaries to the New York Times and to uh, the rest of the UK press at the time. Uh, so we have an example of um, uh, March 20th. This is about a week after lockdowns begin in earnest. He's still touting the 2.2 million figure to the New York Times in a, a major column that highlights it in its its headline. Uh, you know, a month later, we still have the media and we still have President Trump that are citing this 2.2 million figure as the scenario that would have played out had they not uh, engaged in a heavy-handed lockdown policy. Uh, so I think w- what we have is a media world and a political world that uh, that really rewards and gives a lot of attention, undue attention, to extreme alarmist models, whereas the more tempered, necessary data analysis that we have, the stuff that uh, uh, Professor Ioannidis at Stanford has been calling for, uh, falls uh, by the wayside. It tends to be suppressed because it doesn't grab headlines. That's a pretty good summation. Phil Magnus, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, author of The 1619 Project, A Critique and Cracks in the Ivory Tower, The Moral Mess of Higher Education. Phil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I just wanted to give a local example from Illinois uh, to uh, advance the discussion about what I mean when I say that uh, the people who preach science 
and practice mysticism, the, the men and women of the left I'm talking about here, uh, as uh, other states are opening up in a sensible way. And uh, Illinois has extended its shelter-in-place order to May 30th, although that's facing some legal challenges now. But uh, nonetheless, I'll give you an example of the relaxing that's being done in a state that is one of the most draconian when it comes to the uh, shelter-in-place strictures, golfing. And again, this isn't uh, me uh, gording my own axe here because I want to play golf because I'm a golf enthusiast. I do. That's true. I can play in Indiana. I can play in Wisconsin. Uh, the rules promulgated here as uh, the governor in Illinois, Pritzker, announced that uh, May 1, golf courses could reopen closed to this point, as well as essentially all other forms of outdoor recreation. Closed. Boating, hiking, state parks, the like. Closed. Even though we know that the transmission outside is virtually nil. Even after we got the briefing last week from Department of Homeland Security about the uh, the impact that UV, UV light has on shortening the half-life of the virus on surfaces, as well as humidity not particularly humid in Chicago in in uh, April or probably most of May, but but nonetheless. Twosomes, limited to twosomes, rather than your customary foursome. 15 minutes between tea times. Uh, there's signage that uh, tells you all the things you have to do. Don't congregate, clean, you know, don't handshake, maintain social distancing. No practice ranges, chipping greens, or putting greens to limit large gatherings of individuals. No golf carts. Only private owned, uh, privately owned pull carts can be utilized. Well, a pull cart has a surface. So a privately owned pull cart that has a surface, that can be utilized. But a golf cart that has a surface can't. Well, that's not the case in Indiana. It's not the case, to my understanding, in Wisconsin. But apparently the virus is different in Illinois. Uh, uh, elevate the bottom of the cup. If you can't remove the flags, cl- clubhouses, halfway houses, pro shops shall remain closed, and so on and so forth. Uh, one other thing here. You're, oh, you're allowing golf courses to open, so at least you're allowing those uh, businesses, because that's what they are, whether it's a private club or a public course business, you're allowing those businesses to get uh, you know, back up and running initially. Uh, a couple of uh, course owners. We're in the red with twosomes and no carts. We'll be able to get a hundred to eighty to hundred players a day on the course with the fifteen-minute breaks and only twosomes. Another golf course owner, uh, who's uh, in a community that borders Indiana. Two weeks ago, I played uh, this course, Whitehawk, in Indiana. There were one hundred seventy-six cars in the lot. One hundred three had Illinois plates. They're still going to hop to the board, hop over. To Indiana now because they can play foursomes. Uh, as a whole, my regulars are going to Indiana once a week. They play here three times a week. There's no reason for foursomes to be prohibited. In golf, you know who you're with. It's you and your brother and your friends. There's not one scenario that tracks COVID-19 back to a golf course. That's what's most frustrating about this. That's right. Junk science. But uh, it's only two people in a boat. It's only two people on a uh, in a in a group on a golf course, you know, we have to have equity. Two people on a hiking trail. Uh, you can play golf, but you can't 
hit from the driving range. Wait, you can't keep six feet apart on a driving range? Just like four people can't keep six feet apart on a 7,500-yard course? On a six, you know, a course that takes up, what, six miles? There's not, There's no science behind this. It's mysticism, and it's idiosyncratic control of your life, your livelihood, including your recreational time. That's what's actually happening, at least with some politicians in some states. And this is why we have the 50 laboratories of democracy. And uh, it's clear which of those labs are meth labs and which of those labs are of the commercial variety producing things that uh, attract people to work there. Uh, If I can continue the metaphor. No science behind it. The people preaching science the most, rather than just laying out an argument and providing supporting evidence, just virtue signaling science, are the biggest mystics out there. Leftist politicians, like the governor of Illinois. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. It is uh, now our pleasure to uh, be joined by Mike Lindell. He's the inventor and CEO of My Pillow. Of course, you know that. He's also the author of What Are the Odds? From Crack Addict to CEO. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, you were uh, at the White House a couple of weeks back and caught a lot of flack for offering um, best wishes and prayers to this country. Uh, how has that uh, continued since since that controversy you created? Well, well con- controversy fomented well, by the media. It, right. Well, it's never let up. I've done a hundred and this would be my hundred and second interview since that day on both sides of the political fence, I guess. But yeah, it's been fun. It's been interesting. I, I have the, when they when they had, the biggest attack was right away, and they and uh, that was by your CNNs and MSNBCs of the world, and they. Uh, they attack and then it kind of subsides and i like watching the fights on twitter they're going boycott mike lindell and they go don't boycott him he'll double his ass we see enough of that guy and and <laughs> and, and don't boycott him because we need him to continue making masks right 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 yeah they we've had uh, that's been amazing we've uh, we're up to with all our companies that we reached out to we're up over fifty thousand a day now and what i've kind of noticed it seems like that the hospitals, there's not as much demand now. So I, I'm, my prayers are that they got filled up because we're not hearing from them like we were right in the beginning. Now it's like the first responders. Now it's coming down to another layer with uh, hospices and uh, you know nursing homes, things like that. So we've been like a big information center too. It's been real kind of. We've I've learned a lot about hand sanitizers, 24-hour ones, 60-day sanitizers you spray in buildings. I've learned about safe practices that businesses were not doing and some are doing. In fact, I'm going to write a, an op-ed this week called If I Was a Governor. <laughs> Maybe foreshadowing. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Tell us what you're doing to uh, protect your MyPillow workers. The MyPillow, what we do there, what we did right away was you come and um, I don't have a temperature thing. If I did, I would use that as a laser thing. Just, you know, that's easy. But what we do there is we have a person stationed at the door, every door all day long, both shifts, and they come through one at a time. And when they come through, they get they use the 24-hour hand sanitizer or they, we make sure they wash their hands. They, they have, a, have to have a mask on at all times. Their machines are eight feet apart, not six, they're eight feet. And then we, we let them go on break whenever they want so they don't have to be with, uh, you know, other um, um, anybody else if they don't want to be. And then we sprayed my whole inside. We have uh, 60 days sanitized now. We have the whole inside sprayed. So my employees are feel 100% safe. And we probably, we probably had maybe 20% or 10% that still don't want to come in, which is fine. I don't, you know, I don't, it's not mandatory. And, uh, but what I've seen in the, in the, the essential businesses that are out there, it was terrible. You go back two weeks, it's getting better each day, but I want to be able to go into a gas station or go into a convenience store or go into, you know, a Walgreens or a Whole Foods or whatever. And I want everybody, if everybody wears a mask, it doesn't even wear, it doesn't matter what it's made of. It can be a scarf over your face, but if everybody has one, has one on, I'm protected from them. This is something I've learned. So I've walked in places and it's like business as usual and in other businesses are closed down. It's not right where these guys are sitting there to check out. None of the people, you know, none of the employees even care. And, and that's not good. What, what's uh, what's status of Minnesota in terms of reopening? I, I think Minnesota will be one of the worst in the nation as far as uh, I don't think there's a good plan in place. I think that they, um, you know, they're saying, oh, you got to be tested. There, you know, it's, it's all over the board with different governors, but our governor, I believe, is going to – so far, I don't agree with anything that's going on there. Even the ones that were down protesting him, I was upset with them because they're, they're down there making it a political thing. And I said, you guys should have went down, everybody wearing masks and have signs six feet apart and going, we will open, governor, but we just tell us what's safe. We will be safe. Some, you know, businesses get back, the ones that, like, that are coming back in that, 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 that were closed, any businesses across the country, they're taking it very serious because they want their customers back and they want it to be safe. But all the governor's got to do is here's safe practices. Let's get back to work. And if everybody's six feet apart, wearing masks and stuff, at least in the beginning and sanitizing, it works. Um, I, I do believe in the safe practices that have been proven. And if everybody does it, and then, you know, if you have those seal on the buildings, the governor's seal of safety or whatever, I don't care what governor is. Now, if you walked in there, if you and I walked in there and they and nobody was wearing masks, they would be eaten up by social media because, you know, you got to get consumer confidence back to be able to come out. People need to be feel safe, at least in the beginning and stuff until there's a, you know, until things, um, you know, it levels into where, where everything will be, will be in a different space. We're coming back to a different footprint, but, but uh, you can't keep people, it's going to start going the other way. People are locked up. Their suicide rates are going up, uh, everything. If we wouldn't have had the hope of the entrepreneurs and the consumer confidence and all this stuff that happened right before the pandemic that our president and administration has got, you know, built up this amazing economy and everything with the confidence. If we didn't have that hope to think back to, think where we'd be right now. We'd be hopeless, you know. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your book, your autobiography, what are the odds? 
Yeah, I just launched that yesterday too on a commercial nationwide, and I and and uh, I just think it's a good message of hope. It's perfect for such a time as this. If you if you read it, it took me seven years to write. If you read it, it's gonna. I, I, it's going to bring so much hope to space right now for such a time as this. And with God, all things are possible. And, and these, I've had 14 near death experiences. I've had, I've had my life's like living inside a movie. You're going to read this book and it's going to be, you're going to go, wow, this is the best fiction book ever. And then you're going to go, what do you mean? Is this real? <laughs> and, um, you know, it's like the American dream on steroids. It could only happen in our great country that our veterans have fought for years and, and, uh, and getting that, you know, I couldn't have done all this. Here's a, my friends, when I was in the white house, sitting next to the president, they go, what's this ex crack alley sitting next to the president on national TV. Got, you know, Jesus must be real. This is impossible. <laughs> <laughs> he is Mike Lindell, inventor and CEO of my pillow. Of course, he's also the author of what are the odds from crack addict to CEO. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. God bless. Take yeah. care. God bless. For the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, visit The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and hear about the latest ne'er do well to be sprung in the COVID 19 era. Yeah, the latest uh, federal inmate to find his freedom because of concerns about uh, the spread of COVID-19 in prisons. Maybe you'll remember him if you hear his famous incantation. It's time for us to come together. It's time for us to rebuild a New Orleans, the one that should be a chocolate New Orleans. And I don't care what people are saying uptown or wherever they are. This city will be chocolate at the end of the day. This city will be a majority African-American city. It's the way God wants it to be. Yeah, that's right. That's Chocolate City, former New Orleans Mayor Ray Nagin, who, after uh, serving his term as mayor, uh, was serving a 10-year stretch in a federal prison for, you know, the usual thing, setting up a consulting company to uh, try to leverage his uh, fame and uh, status as a public official with uh, government uh, operators, uh, you know, tax fraud, bank fraud, extortion, bribery, the usual stuff. Ten years. He served seven. So he had three years left, but he is out now. And it uh, calls to mind, of course, Katrina, where his local implementation of the disaster preparedness slash relief plan left a lot to be desired, as did Governor Blanco's. If you remember, uh, both of those careers came to an end after the response. It wasn't uh, Kanye West, Bush doesn't like black people. That wasn't the problem with New Orleans and Katrina. And what about uh, the aftermath, the aftermath of the response to Katrina? Any instruction there for our current crisis? Good write-up by Emily Chambly-Wright, who's the president of the Institute for Humane Studies. 
and a co-author of How We Came Back, Voices from Post-Katrina New Orleans. She writes this, uh, one Katrina lesson that's relevant today. Once government occupies civil society with top-down control, it will tend to over-police and stay too long. Few officials want to risk lifting the lockdown orders lest they face public scrutiny if something goes wrong. The result is systematic over-caution, which expands government control. Look at what the incentives are. This is the how do we get out of it because we don't want public scrutiny if something goes wrong. Systematic over-caution expands government control. One of the takeaways post-Katrina. Probably going to be one of the takeaways post-COVID-19 as well. And uh, while you're uh, sheltering in place in so many places, do check out No Safe Spaces. This is the documentary produced by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla uh, that tackles the attack on free speech in this country on college campuses in Hollywood, on social media platforms. Check it out at nosafespaces.com. Hollywood doesn't want you to see it. That's why it's not on the big streaming services. But you can see it at nosafespaces.com for a limited time only. Use the discount code SAFE25, this is for Dan Prof listeners, and you get 25% off, no safe spaces. Again, SAFE25 is the discount code to get 25% off, no safe spaces, which you find at nosafespaces.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. This was an interesting moment uh, between the uh, New York political press corps and uh, America's governor, as I understand it from the press coverage of him, Andrew Cuomo, about nursing homes. We've talked uh, a bit about that because of the significant percentage of COVID-19 deaths that have occurred in nursing homes in this country, in Western Europe. It is remarkable. Significant In Massachusetts, it's more than 50% of all COVID-19 deaths. Western European countries, a handful of them uh, from a low of a projected 33% in a place like Portugal to up to two-thirds in a place like Norway. Significant. And uh, so it sort of undermines the nature of the coverage, not necessarily always the specifics of the coverage, media coverage, but certainly the nature of it, which is everybody's equally vulnerable. Anybody can get it. And therefore, the lethality risk is equal, even when they qualify and say, no, but, you know, it, it, it especially targets the elderly and those with underlying conditions. The implication is we're all in it together. We're all in it together. Isn't that it? Isn't that the mantra? And so uh, Andrew Cuomo, who issued a, an executive order requiring nursing homes to treat, take and treat COVID-19 patients, had this to say when he was asked about a nursing home that threw his hands up and said, we can't handle it. We don't have the staff. Just whatever reason they want, they call the Department of Health and they say, you take Bernadette. I can't handle her. And the Department of Health takes her. Now, when the Department of Health takes Bernadette, they no longer get paid for Bernadette. Oh, money. Go ahead. So, 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 so good a nursing home start 
Jesse. Could a nursing home patient go to a hospital then? So if a, if a nursing home is overcapacitated, they can't handle their patients, could a patient be transfer, transferred back to a hospital and the hospital could then care for this person? Yeah. That, that could happen? Yes. Have you guys gotten requests for that? No, not yet. Not yet? Nope. It's odd that they haven't gotten a request for that. Something else Angel Cooper said, oh, money. Oh, I see. Nursing homes are the only one in, interested in the resources they need to operate. Is that right, Governor? Aren't you the governor that's been prattling on for the last week about uh, how dare Mitch McConnell extend a lifeline to mismanaged states like New York or Illinois by uh, suggesting that uh, he would uh, support a provision that states could declare bankruptcy so as to reorganize, say, their unfunded pension liabilities because you want blank check block grants? So I, I see when, when it comes to beating your tin cup against CNN cameras for federal money for New York City and New York State, as you've been doing for weeks, actually, I wouldn't have passed. I wouldn't have signed on to the refill of the payroll protection program without an inclusion of state and local funding because I know they don't want to do it. And that's what I want. So when it comes to government's bottom line, the money you want from somewhere else to paper over how New York State has been governed for generations, going back to your father, frankly, that's okay. When a nursing home would make any sort of overture about resources to operate, to care for its residents, that's unseemly. You get the mentality? That was an important moment there, just to give you an indication of the differing philosophies. Government-centric philosophy, we have it in Illinois, and you see it throughout the country, certainly the press has it, versus private sector-oriented. Uh, which comes first, the public sector to open so the private sector can or the private sector to open so the public sector can exist? Big philosophical divide in this country on that topic. For more on uh, the lockdowns and all other things COVID-19 related, we're pleased to be joined by Lyman Stone. He's an adjunct fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a research fellow at the Institute for Family Studies and former international economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. I'll try to holster my Department of Agriculture jokes. Uh, Lyman Stone, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure to be on here. Uh, you ask a good question in your piece that I read from the public discourse about lockdowns and why they don't work. Um, uh, you say, well, uh, what's your evidence that lockdowns don't work, you're asked? Well, shouldn't it be in the moving party to present their case in chief? Shouldn't those who want to impose a lockdown, given all the associated costs, uh, have evidence that it works rather than me having to disprove that it works. Exactly. I mean, we're, we're in a situation where we have some pretty serious, uh, some pretty serious policies being advocated that can have a, a very dramatic impact um, on everyday people's lives. Um, and they're being advocated in often, frankly, an evidence free environment. Right. And, and then just give us a little bit of your look back uh, at uh, 70 or 80 years of history in, in the West and what you find about lockdowns. Right. So we can go back and we can look at previous uh, epidemic, epidemic outbreaks, whether it's the 1918 flu pandemic, the 1929 uh, flu pandemic, the Hong Kong flu, the Asian flu. The U.S. has used a lot of strategies to try and deal with uh, epidemics, a lot of successful strategies, school closures centralized quarantine, mask requirements. What we've never done, what has never really been tried and hasn't really been tested is locking down all of society. Uh, the first time that that was really tried in a documented and scientifically studied way was in Liberia during Ebola. 
but they only locked the country down for about 72 hours. And even then it was only for to enable a door-to-door -door information campaign, not to just keep everyone locked up indefinitely. China was really the pioneer of the lock everyone up and threaten them to stay home strategy, which of course they were. It's like the most communist strategy you can imagine <laughs> right. to fight the disease. Um, right, yeah, they weren't locked, they were locked up. Um, but uh, so um, they, they kind of came up with this strategy and then the World Health Organization was very, very impressed with it. Um, and so they kind of promoted it to everyone around the world. And then everyone around the world kind of just got on board. And so they adopted lockdowns instead of much more effective strategies. Now, the remarkable thing is the countries around China obviously are more used to working with China. They're a little bit savvier. And so they basically knew that China was lying through its teeth the whole time. So like Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Vietnam, these countries all had extremely successful COVID responses. Wall Street Journal just ran an article highlighting Vietnam's response today. It's worth a read. And the takeaway from all of them is none of them adopted widespread lockdowns. None of them. They're the most successful documented cases of crushing COVID in the world, and not one of them adopted China's strategy. Because all of them knew from the get-go, China's lying. But for whatever reason, the Western world just kind of swallowed the lie and has adopted lockdowns that don't have historical evidence to support them um, and that aren't accruing new evidence as the pandemic proceeds. There's a lot of countervailing evidence, actually. Yeah, exactly. So we can look at the example of countries that have had lockdowns for several weeks now, and we can see if lockdowns work as intended and they break the chain of transmission, there should be a decline of deaths at a specified point in time. In my, in my article, I argued that it was 20 days, um, but it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. But say it's 20 days just for convenience, and trust me that the math works out even if you use um, a more complicated uh, calculation here. But the, it takes a certain amount of time for an infection of COVID to become a death, and deaths are our most reliably reported data. So we can look at deaths, and we can use that to backtrack when did the spread of the disease start to decline. And what we can see is it's pretty reliably a few days before lockdowns. That is, the, the peak in deaths comes a few days too early. Now, you might at first think, well, maybe, Lyman, maybe we're just wrong about how long it takes COVID to kill people. Maybe, maybe we're just being too precise for our own good, and we just need to accept some uncertainty. But I think there's a way simpler explanation. And the explanation is, people began to socially distance before lockdowns occurred. In every country in the world, everywhere you look, what you can see is that people were voluntarily socially distancing and they were complying with less invasive regulations for days or weeks before lockdowns came into force. Well, right. Which to me said, yeah, I mean, you had you had yeah. the, you had uh, the Trump task force uh, promulgate their guidelines, their 15 day guidelines initially mid-March before virtually all of the lockdowns exactly. occurred. So on so March 16th, you get the guidelines. Earlier than that, March 13th, Trump declares a national emergency. March 11th, we get the European travel ban. In fact, my research suggests that sometime between March 8th and March 12th, every state in America, except for Washington and California, where it began earlier, um, began widespread socially dis social distancing measures. And in almost every state, those measures were complete before shelter-in-place orders went out. And that is, 
there is almost no evidence that U.S. shelter-in-place orders did anything to increase social distancing. Uh, Lyman Stone, adjunct fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, research fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and former international economist at the U.S. Department of Ag. Lyman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show uh andy lack who is the head of news at nbc penned a piece Journalism is under attack from coronavirus in the White House, but we're winning. We're winning. Hmm. That's an interesting way to phrase it, isn't it? We're winning. This is a contest. Or is it uh, the fourth estate? We're holding someone to account. We're holding the government to account. We're providing the truth. No, we're winning. It's a binary. Either we win something. What do you win? A different politician or the politician we want to replace wins. That's the purpose of journalism? Win elections. Isn't that what Andy Lack is saying? Oh, by the way, uh, he, we're winning. And uh, he uh, writes, uh, President Trump uh, came into office railing against many of the foundations of our small-D democratic institutions, including a free press. He's not railing against the institution. He's railing against specific outlets and specific reporters for specific outlets, isn't he? Railing against the institution, even as, uh, unfortunately, I disagree his payroll protection program bails out news outlets in the millions for Axios, for the Tampa Bay Times, for the Seattle Times. Hmm. He uh, goes on to uh, say, despite the challenges they face, the journalists, the profession, the fourth estate, what has become powerfully clear during this pandemic is that the heart of journalism has never been stronger. As ever, journalists are asking tough questions and going where the facts lead. Not looking to win any popularity contest. No, not them. Just doing what Woodward and Bernstein inspired my generation and the generations that followed to always do. Seek the best obtainable version of the truth. A lot of qualifications to the truth. Mm -hmm. Seek the best obtainable version of the truth. That's what they're doing, huh? He uh, concedes this point, if you call this a concession. Andy Lack, head of NBC News. Make no mistake, journalists have plenty of faults. Our coverage is rarely, if ever, flawless. We are a collection of human beings making hundreds of decisions a day. Sometimes mistakes will be made, you know, just like Chinese communist researchers in Wuhan. Sometimes they make innocent mistakes, well-intended as they are. During these times, writes Lack, as millions of people turn to the news for answers, the choices we make about what to air and how to report it can make the difference between panic or persistence and even life and death. Humbled by the responsibility we bear, we try our damnedest to serve our audience. Is that what you see from all of those at the task force press briefings with their scoop hats on? With respect to that, uh, that measure, the difference between panic or persistence, are they uh, walking that line, do you think? Life and death. They're making life and death decisions. Well, let's just take a couple of examples, shall we? Monday night's uh, press conference slash briefing, the uh, question about... Alex Azar's pronouncements in January, HHS secretary, and his future as HHS secretary. Secretary of HHS, Alex Azar. Yeah. On January the 28th, he was in the briefing room. 
And in the briefing room, he told reporters that for the individual American, the virus should not be an impact on their day-to-day -day life. Three months later, more than 55,000 of our fellow Americans have now lost their lives. Mr. President, why is he still your top health advisor? Why is he still serving as the HHS secretary? Well, I think it's a very uh, unfair question because you have many great professionals, some of them you have great respect for, and you have many people in the other party. You mentioned Alex Azar, but you have many people in the other party that have uh, said the same thing and with even more confidence. So a lot of people didn't get that right. Uh, I, was, I was very fortunate, whether it was through luck or whatever, that we closed the border. We put a ban on China other than our citizens coming in. We had our citizens. You can't keep out American citizens. You know, gee, you can't come back into your country. That's a little tough to do. But we put a ban on China. That was very fortunate. But I could tell you that Nancy Pelosi was dancing in the streets in Chinatown. She wanted to go, let's go out and party. Now, that was late into February. So you don't mention that. But you could mention that. What about, uh, yeah, he referenced, he did say specifically to the report. I mean, you want to go back and look at what Tony Fauci was saying in January? What uh, Messiner over at CDC was saying? Messiner in uh, January, what the WHO was. You want to go back and look at what New York City and state officials were saying in March? So by that uh, level of accountability, what should happen in New York since a full 40% of the nation's deaths are in New York State? What should happen to Andrew Cuomo? Who gets fired there? Is anybody asking for somebody to be fired? It's, remar it's still remarkable to me, and I'm not playing that gotcha game, but I'm just trying to say, if this is the standard at the federal level or in particular states, why isn't it the standard in New York to say the state that had the greatest outbreak, the most cases by a wide margin, the most deaths by an even wider multiple? How is it that there's no questions about how that's been handled in New York City and New York State? Huh. Yeah. The media doing their best to get the obtainable, the best available, uh, obtainable version of the truth, says NBC News head Andy Lack. Hmm. I don't think so. Let me give you another example of uh, media allegedly trying to obtain the uh, best obtainable version of the truth. Uh, this uh, question again at uh, Monday's task force presser. If an American president loses more Americans over the course of six weeks than died in the entirety of the Vietnam War, does he deserve to be reelected? So, yeah, we've lost a lot of people. But if you look at what original projections were, 2.2 million, we're probably heading to 60,000, 70,000. It's far too many. One person is too many for this. And I think we've made a lot of really good decisions. The big decision was closing the border or doing the ban, people coming in from China. Yeah, right. Going back to his decision in late January that was criticized at the time by the same people that are now saying what that reporter was really saying is you're responsible for 55, 60,000 deaths, whatever the total ends up being, uh, whenever they stop counting, whenever this becomes less interesting to them than something else. You're responsible for this, so should you be reelected? And the answer is no. That's what she's really saying. I wish she would just have the integrity to say it. Uh, should a president get elect get reelected? Sixty thousand people. Sixty thousand people die in America every eight days. I mean, that's the context. 
the H3N2 virus, since they want to make the Vietnam comparisons. Chris Wallace did over the weekend on Fox News Sunday, too. The H3N2 virus, 1968, 1968 pandemic, killed over a million individuals. Uh, in the United States, the virus killed more than 100,000. 1968, when we had 205 million people, a third less. The 1968 pandemic, nobody even, I mean, it's all like 1918 Spanish flu. We don't talk about the influenza 57. We don't talk about the 68 pandemic, H3N2. Uh, you know, there's some comparisons made to our annual uh, number of deaths from the from influenza now, particularly as it pertains to lethality rate as we're getting better data on COVID-19. I, I, it's just the, the responses. Right. The viral outbreak, a viral outbreak on this magnitude, not unprecedented. The response, unprecedented. Why? And uh, media? Persistence or panic? What are they trafficking? For the dichotomy presented by Andy Lack of NBC. What did you hear though? With the, there, with those two questions. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, a little detour from our talk on COVID-19. To, uh, there's a, a remote connection, but um, you'll recall we had uh, this gentleman on uh, several weeks back to talk about a piece he wrote on all-you-can-eat buffets around America, uh, their uh, sort of importance as a cultural institution. It was a compelling piece, actually. It uh, got a lot of play. And uh, so uh, that was pre-COVID-19. So uh, how are buffets doing post-COVID-19 or during COVID-19, I should say, and their prospects for existing post-COVID-19? Addison Del Mastro, assistant editor of the American Conservative, has uh, given us an update. Uh, After COVID is the buffet, yesterday's leftovers. Let's discuss with Addison Del Mastro. Thanks for joining us again, Addison. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Thanks for uh, having me on again. Well, I'll tell you what, you, you're a pretty nostalgic guy for a young man, and we're going to get to your uh, <laughs> your your uh, waxing nostalgic about the post office in a minute. But let's start with buffets. And um, uh, you, uh, well, just, just give us an update on where they are since you're sort of our buffet correspondent uh, as, as, as restaurants around the country, of course, are closed. Oh, glad. I'll, uh, I'll be adding that to my title. Um, well, Every buffet that I'm aware of in my corner of the country, I'm in Northern Virginia, a DC area, and every single one that I know of is is completely closed down. Um, and maybe that's not surprising because buffets aren't known for takeout. They're not known, obviously, for a menu. Everything's made in large batches, and the whole business model depends on crowds and depends on volume. And if that sounds like the worst business model for a, a, a pandemic, well, <laughs> it probably is. And so, unfortunately, while a lot of places are able to remain open in some capacity, these buffet restaurants, you know, without essentially changing their business model, are not really able to do that. And 
you have this trend, a long-term trend, at least in the last 10 years, if not a little longer, where the buffet has been trending towards being a, a bit of a downscale phenomenon, less common in affluent communities, sort of compared to fast food seen as almost something for lower income people. You know, people are very snobbish on all we can eat buffets. And perhaps this is going to be the death knell, hopefully not, but, but it may be for buffets in places like where I'm living. And uh, why we should care, you write, a restaurant that can cater simultaneously to low-income Hispanic families, after-church African-American crowds, hungry teenagers, indecisive diners, and homesick immigrants is a wonderful thing. One distinct memory from my many grad school buffet nights is the number of times the generic happy birthday song came on over the restaurant speakers. Generic things can mean something. Um, you know, this is what I mean when I say you uh, uh, wax uh, nostalgic. Um, and uh, so, but but I mean that the it's interesting because this is a, a, a bigger conversation right now than just the buffet, because what you're really talking about is sort of interpersonal connection and togetherness. Yeah. Um, you know, when people talk about diversity, people some people sort of don't like that and they'll think of HR departments and, you know, college campuses and, and the whole political aspect of that. But what I've realized is these, you know, humble restaurants are American diversity. That's a, a cross section of, of our country in a lot of ways. And there's nothing political about that. Nothing sort of that that's being pushed on anybody. That's just a bottom up emergent, you know, expression of, of our great big country. And I think if we lose those spaces, we're losing not just you know, the chance to eat too much Chinese food, but we're really losing something genuine about our, um, that, that, that expressed national character. Uh, I, well, I mean, and again, look, uh, as a conservative, uh, we are to conserve uh, resources, uh, things of cultural import to, to try to conserve them, not through government necessarily, but in terms of, uh, what you're doing, which is sort of singing their praises and uh, uh, explaining their distinctiveness and their importance to our communal fabric. And so there's, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with that. You you make uh, compelling arguments for the all-you-can-eat buffet. Uh, when we return, I want to see, boy, this is going to be a little bit tougher, I think, than the buffet. Make a compelling argument for why we should love the post office. This is a a veritable ode to Cliff Clavin that you've penned for the American conservative. More from Addison Del Mastro right after this. Fixers and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Addison Del Mastro. He's the assistant editor of the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. 
Before the break, we were talking about uh, the cultural importance of uh, the all-you-can-eat buffet, and Edison Delmastro is the resident expert on that topic. Uh, this is going to be a little bit harder to sell, this a piece that you penned, Addison, why we should love the post office, a post office with $120 billion in unfunded pension liabilities, not to be, uh, you know, a, a green eye shades guy, but uh, you argue <laughs> that uh, that there's a, you know, there's a cultural import to the post office as well that is uh, perhaps lost in the discussion about its future. Yeah, well, I do argue that, um, and a lot of people argue against me. But... I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the line that I think encapsulated that that argument, I think I even put it in my um, subheader, was, was that the post office is political but innocent, equally Rooseveltian and Rockwellian. And, and so when you look at the history of the post office, that it obviously isn't a New Deal program. It's in the Constitution, and it goes back right. you know, to the beginning of the country. And the post office has always been understood not just as a utilitarian institution for getting the mail out. It's also been understood as this means of stitching the country together, that, that it's a sort of civic inheritance that and being an American as an American, you know, entitles you to the benefits, the cultural benefits and the educational benefits, um, the commercial benefits of mail delivery. And so the argument I'm making is sort of, I suppose, some people would say it's up in the clouds and it ignores the real problems with, with the post office as it exists today. But my feeling is you have to look at the meaning of something like this and, and the fact that, you know, if it disappears, We'll miss it. Maybe maybe in Northern Virginia, I won't miss it a whole lot. But people out in this big country will miss it where where a town is essentially a crossroads with a little store, a post office, and a church. And when the post office goes, that town may disappear off the map. And that's somebody's home. It might be home to 100 people, but it's home. And there's, there's something more than money and something more than utilitarian calculation there you uh um yeah just just i guess continuing on that thread you uh talk about that letter in the mailbox isn't just a service it's a promise what do you mean by that um i think i mean what i uh said as a civic entitlement and i, I use the word entitlement not in the sense of welfare and i i, I think what's important about the post is that it's not a welfare program. It's not something that some people get and other people pay for. It's something that in some way everybody contributes to and everybody benefits from. And it feels like there's increasingly little in our politics and in our civic life that's truly universal, that, that belongs to every American equally. And the post office is one of those things that does that. Um, Again, as I said, it's political, but it's innocent. It isn't something that you can reduce to um, to an entitlement for some, which, you know, I mean, I'm not a huge opponent of government myself, but I have a soft spot for the post office more than for the average government program. Right. And and look, I, I, I get what you're saying. And you, you um, almost like uh, go into a stand up routine there where you talk about how remarkable it is that you can you know, get a letter from coast to coast for 
for for you know a handful of pennies essentially is what it is and it always has been but 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 of course you know the heartless uh, among us like myself will say yeah that's all well and good to be uh, have a romantic view of the post office and and it's uh, sort of psychic importance as a piece of Americana, the Rockwellian aspect of it that you describe. But, uh, you know, can't we run it at cost? <laughs> you know, if you, if you could run it at cost, then perhaps it would be uh, less the target of uh, those who seek to uh, sell it to Jeff Bezos. Yeah, I mean, absolutely there are ways that the post office could be improved and uh, one libertarian fellow who i quoted in my story he said um you know he said i don't hate the post office i think it can it can run better and if we run it better then then we can love it more um and th- there's a program the post office had i believe i linked to an article about it where where the post office was essentially subsidizing um shipping from china you know like when you can buy something for one or two dollars on Amazon or eBay and and it costs a lot more to mail than that but it's two dollars and free shipping and it comes from a barge um, a container ship in China and and the Chinese were maybe subsidizing that but so was our post office and they were losing money on it um, or some of the programs they have I think with Amazon where they're losing money and then of course there was the uh, Bush era law that required the post office to have retirement savings programs beyond what what almost any other company or institution would normally do. Um, so, I mean, that that last one is not the post office's fault, but the other ones probably are. And there's, I'm not going to argue that we could manage it better, but managing it better means it's there for us and we can love it more. Now, you also, uh, you know, I, I get what you're doing here, but... Um... You write, Congress has bailed out banks, they bailed out cars. Hell, they, if it came to it, they'd probably bail out fast food and porn. I, actually, they, they are doing some of that right now with the payroll protection program, I think. Uh, <laughs> and you write, uh, none of those have their own clause in the Constitution. That's a fair point, but as a conservative, you don't want to get into the business of, uh, you know, bail him out, bail me out. Everybody gets bailed out. The federal government bails out the federal government. <laughs> well, I think... Uh... I think that's called printing money. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, right. I guess it's a question of now that we're here, you know, what one more isn't so bad, especially when it's one that has a civic value that the other ones may not have. But if we could go back, I, I would be sympathetic to the folks saying, you know, no bailouts from the beginning. Um, at least that's consistent. And, and yeah. I think, Consistency is also a conservative tally. Yes, no question about it. Well, uh, John Ratzenberger will be very pleased by your uh, Love the Post Office piece. Uh, no question about that either. Either Addison Del Mastro, assistant editor of the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. Thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. Good God, we got to Electric Avenue. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, check out uh, Rusty Vino's latest piece in First Things. I will tweet it out at Dan Prof Show. 
He writes, uh, data coming in and their import is clear. The coronavirus pandemic is not and never was a threat to society. COVID-19 poses a danger to the elderly and the medically compromised. Otherwise, for most who present symptoms, it can be nasty and persistent, but is not life-threatening. A majority of those infected do not notice that they have the disease. Coronavirus presents us with a medical challenge, not a crisis. The crisis has been of our own making. The science increasingly shows that the measures we have taken in the last few weeks have been both harmful with freedoms lost, money spent, livelihoods destroyed, and pointless. This statement will provoke outrage, Reno writes. Most will insist it's not true, but a study from the Wasse region of France found an infection rate of 25%, which if true for France as a whole suggests the virus fatality rate in that country, which is considered hard hit, is 0.13%. And he goes on to talk about the studies of Santa Clara, L.A. County. Uh, We mentioned New York. Goes on to talk about uh, uh, Stanford professor John Ioannidis' analysis, which we've discussed. And uh, he sums it this way. We've been stampeded into a regime of social control that is unprecedented in our history. Our economy has been shattered. Ordinary people have been terrorized by death-infused propaganda designed to motivate obedience to the limits on free movement. We have been reduced to life as medical subjects in our condition of self-quarantine. As unemployment numbers skyrocket and Congress spends trillions, the political stakes rise. The experts, professionals, bureaucrats, and public officials who did this to us have tremendous incentives to close ranks and say, it's not wise to tell people that the danger was never grave and now has passed. Sustaining the coronavirus narrative will require many lies. It will be up to us to insist on the truth. A lot to think about from Reno, as always. And I just leave you with this question. I I keep saying it. The response, at least in certain quarters, is unprecedented. And it's being tolerated really across the spectrum to varying degrees. But generally, up until this point, as we uh, talk here on April 28th, it has been. Why is this different? Why have you acceded to the sort of government interventions at every level that you and Americans never acceded to with something on this scale. Why? Something to think about. And uh, when you're looking for a mental health break that you can't uh, get from my show, uh, I've got some good news for you. Uh, You've got, uh, I've got an answer, something you can watch. Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus. It's a documentary presenting convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. This is the work product, uh, work product of investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel, and throughout the world to search for answers to a very important question. Did the stories like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus at Home, along with the other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. Three films in the series, Exodus, The Moses Controversy, and The Red Sea Miracle. Watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and others in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. And think about the question I posed. Thank you for joining us on this installment of The Dan Prof Show, and please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.